Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Some respect the property of others. What are you doing to lead us a... The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Chris, good morning to you. Hello. Lovely to chat to you as always. Our lines are open for you. Take advantage of this time with Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. If you missed the show, you want to listen to it again, then you can download the podcast around one o'clock. But right now, live on air, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, let's start with this email from last week from Kuliso, who says it is claimed that the continents of the world were once one continent and they separated through the process of continental drift. Can you tell us about that, Chris? That's definitely true. Good question, Kaliso. Yes, once upon a time, or not so long ago actually, all of the major continents of the Earth were all jammed together in one supercontinent, and they have since divided. And the question that Kaliso is sort of asking is well, if you've got one landmass, how do they all separate? And, and also, how can one go one way and one go the other way? And the answer is that these pieces of the Earth's crust the thick, heavy-duty stuff on the outside of the planet, they're all floating on the mantle, which is a more viscous material deeper down, and they're not actually physically joined together, So the, the, the continental crust plate. And so one can go one way and one can go the other way. And so energy flow and thermal changes in the Earth mean that they're continually drifting around, and they can go wherever they like. And so at certain points they can be joined together and at others they can be distributed the way that they now are over the Earth's surface. And uh, that they actually just don't have any attachment because on the Earth's surface you've got the oceans, which is, there's, there's oceanic plate, and this is actually being subducted underneath the continental crust where the ocean meets the edges of these bits of continent. So everything is in a continual state of flux, and over geological timescales, you near know, millions of years, these things move around. The Himalaya mountains came out of the fact that India used to be down, right down south near Antarctica, and over millions of years it migrated north, and it pushed the seafloor into the Eurasian plate and created the Himalayas, pushing them up. So some of that seafloor was subducted, some got pushed up in the air. So these things are moving all the time. Thank you very much, Chris. And uh, shall we go straight to the lines? Is it Jenny in Bedford View? Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, I watch a program called QI. I'm not too sure if you're familiar with it. And the explanation, you know how we have a wonderful working week and the sun is shining and beautiful and we come to the weekend and it rains. Um, it always seems to rain on the weekend, and, and the explanation had something to do with when industry closes down, it changes the, the, the amount of smog or the amount of something in the air, and therefore it rains on the weekend. And I wondered if there was any truth in that or whether it is a known phenomenon. Hello, Jenny. I believe there is an association between rain and the working week. And yes, you're right, wow. that when you have things like industry, also people going to work in cars and public transport, this all contributes to particles and heat in the atmosphere, and this can have a climate-changing effect. There was an, another study recently which looked around airports around the world and was able to demonstrate that there's significantly more rainfall very close to airports than there is further from the airport, which could be explained only 
in association with flights. So aeroplanes going through clouds is capable of triggering those clouds to begin raining. So our activities can definitely alter the weather. And yes, there is supposed to be an accumulation in the atmosphere of these particles during the working week, which by the time the weekend comes, then produces a, an ensuing rain shower. Then, the, then, of course, that clears the situation and then the system begins again on the Monday. We're fine weather again, but by then we're all <laughs> back at work. We, we need to have weekends at a different time of the week for some <laughs> people, but not everybody. That's an interesting thought. Thank you very much, Jenny, for that question. I, I haven't even thought about it or even, uh, you know, reflected on, on, on these observations. Very interesting in the, indeed. You live and learn. Let's go to Michael in Senton. Hi. Hi, Reddy. Mm. My question is... Um, I use my brain primarily to think, to speak, to act on a daily basis. Why then am I not aware of my internal functions, how my blood is going around my body or what's going on in my kidneys? If it's the same brain that is controlling all of that and I use that same brain to think and act and speak, how come I'm not consciously aware of what's going on in my own body since I'm using the same brain? (laughs) Hello, Michael. Uh, There are two aspects to this question. One of them is at the level of what is your brain actually monitoring and what is it monitoring consciously? That's the second part of the question. So first of all, what is your brain monitoring? Well, your brain is monitoring everything that's going on in your body and controlling it. And what is it monitoring consciously? It's monitoring those things that you need to be aware of. It is not presenting to your consciousness its work on other aspects of your physiology, how your body works, that you don't need to directly know about. It's a bit like when you're driving your car, you just need to know that the engine's going and the car's going along. You don't actually need to be informed at how hot the pistons are or how much oil is flowing through each of the oil drillings in the engine to lubricate it. You, you just know it's working and there's a computer in the, in the engine compartment which is keeping an eye on those things and if they go wrong it'll flash up a red light. It's very similar with the nervous system. There's far too much going on in us and around us for us to be distracted by being consciously aware of all the systems that are running. So our brain filters out the stuff that we don't actually need to worry about and only informs the top dog, you, uh, when something is serious wrong. The way that that it does that is that the bottom of the brain is a region called the hypothalamus and it it effectively sits on the underneath of the brain. If you were to lift a brain out of the skull and place your hand directly underneath it, that flat floor of the brain is where the hypothalamus is and in there are a whole bunch of neurological circuits that are receiving information coming in from all these different systems in the body monitoring blood pressure, the pH, acidity of the blood, how fast your heart is beating, how much oxygen there is, and so on. And it integrates all this information, and it then generates a a correct response, which is fed back out via various nerve systems and hormone systems to the end organs to control what the body actually does. So it doesn't bother telling you about those things. And one extra added little bit of information is that there is also a system built into your brain that anticipates what will happen in your body when you consciously do something and it then deletes that information coming back in so you're not distracted by it. In other words, if I know I'm going to tickle myself in a minute, when I tickle myself, I don't feel I'm being tickled. I can't tickle myself because I'm already anticipating being tickled. So the tickle stimulus is deleted from the incoming information coming back to my brain. And and that's why we think you can't do things like tickle yourself. Thank you very much, Michael. Is it Barry in Randburg? Yeah. Mm. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, you know, the winter solstice is coming up, but when, when it comes around, the sun doesn't start coming up earlier, or later, sorry, 
until about 10 days later. I wonder why that is. Hello, Barry. Well, the, the reason for this is, as one person put it to me, uh, that the, the path of the sun around the Earth isn't a perfect circle. It is an ellipse. And as the sun goes on that ellipse, then as it goes along the long side, are you, are you familiar with the shape of an ellipse? Yeah? Barry? Yes, yeah. Okay. So as the sun goes along the long side of the ellipse, then it's gonna, there's going to be a, a, an, an effect, sorry, not the sun, as the earth goes along the long side of that eclipse around the sun, then there's going to be a period where the earth is going to be turning a little bit, um, but, it's, but it's also going along a lot more. And that has the effect of, it's almost like slipping gears on a bicycle. So it will actually have the effect of changing the time at which the sun is rising and setting, but the overall day length is not going to change very much. And that coincides with when these solstices happen. I think the best thing to do is if you grab a piece of paper and draw a, a sun in, as a dot in the middle of the paper and then draw an ellipse around it and imagine the earth turning as it goes around because the earth turning is day and night, obviously, and going around the sun is the year, the seasons. Uh, if, if you get to my drift, you'll, you'll draw your earth and you'll see as it goes along the flattened side of the ellipse that it has to sort of slip a little bit as it goes round, and that will explain why you're seeing what you're seeing. Okay, Is that all right, Barry? Thank you very much, Barry in Rainberg. We're taking a break. Tabo in Soshanguvia, please stay on the line. Also have some SMSs as well uh, when we return. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. We have the Naked Scientist with us. We're taking your questions. We're trying to understand ourselves and our world a little bit better. So do bring those questions through on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Tabo in Soshanguve. Hi there. Uh, hi. Uh, I would like to know, Chris, uh, why is it when we get inside water, particularly warm water, that our fingers and our feet become wrinkled, and why not the entire body? I would like to know why, particularly in hot water, why wrinkles and why not the entire body? Hi, Tabo. Well, there's a number of theories about this. One of them is just that on the fingers, you've got a lot of uh, dry, dead skin, which is there to protect your fingers because you do a lot of feeling with them, and that when that water gets into the dead skin, it causes the skin cells to swell up a little bit and rather like railway tracks that are butt on a hot day, uh, there's not enough space for them to fit because the gaps aren't big enough so they can bend. That's why you leave a bigger gap in the railway tracks. It might be that the cells all ram into each other and throw the skin into lots of ridges and folds. But more recently, some scientists in England actually said, well, they've got another theory, and they reckon that this is a neurological reflex, and they think that this happens to give fingers the equivalent of tread on tyres, so that when we were fishing or when, when in primitive days early on in our evolution, when we were immersed in water, we would get a better grip on things we were trying to cling on to, or when we were fishing, we'd find it easier to grab things if we had uh, fingers that were, that were wrinkly when wet, owing to this reflex. And so they were suggesting it was a sort of combined neurological and hormonal influence to a response to immersion, which makes your fingers do that. Thank you very much, Tabo, in Soshanguve. Um, who came in first? I think it was Olga. Olga in Simonstown. Good morning. Good morning. My question is, what happens to bullets when people... Fire guns into the air. 
Hello, Olga. You sometimes see this when there's been some kind of protest or some coup comes off and then lots of people fire their, their guns straight up in the air in protest and you think, oh, well, you know, does this matter? Well, it does matter and every year people are killed in certain countries by bullets that have gone up because what goes up must come down. Now, there's, there's two aspects to this. When the bullet leaves the gun, you're giving it some kinetic energy and the bullet is working against gravity to go upwards because gravity is trying to pull the bullet down. Therefore, the bullet will climb to a height where it, it has gravitational potential energy equivalent to the kinetic energy it had when it left the gun minus a little bit of air resistance. It then comes falling down again and it converts the gravitational potential energy back into kinetic energy minus a little bit of air resistance again. And so the bullet can actually end up coming down almost as fast as it left the gun, which means it's going at a potentially fatal speed. But there is a wrinkle to this, and this was actually tested on a TV program in America. It, it seems to make a difference whether you fire the gun directly upwards or whether you fire the gun at an angle. If you fire the gun directly upwards, the bullet goes to a very great height, it stops instantaneously and then begins to fall, and as it falls, it tumbles over itself. And this, in, this means that it attracts a greater degree of air resistance and therefore slows down more than if it were travelling like a bullet normally does in this spiral straight line. If, on the other hand, you fire the gun at an angle so that the bullet goes through the air in a smooth arc, the bullet does not tumble in this way, it just continues to describe a smooth arc and will attract less air resistance and therefore will be travelling faster and could potentially hit someone fatally were it to arrive in the vicinity of someone's head on the way down. So it's a dangerous practice to fire your gun up in the air and people shouldn't do it. Okay, Olga. Were you thinking of firing some bullets in the air, Olga? Absolutely not. But whenever I see it happen, you know, I can just can't understand it. Yeah. Thank you for your Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let's go to Farai in Bryanston. Hi. Hello, Ridi. Um, my question is intuition, premonition, sixth sense, whatever you want to call it. Is there a scientific physiological process that takes place uh, for us to experience these moments. Hello, Farai. People have looked very hard for this, and the, there are lots of studies which claim to have found some evidence for people being able to predict things or people having sixth sense or near-death experiences. Uh, they are counterbalanced by many studies that don't seem to find this effect, but we think there might be something called a publication bias going on here, which is that if you do a study and you seem to get an effect, it's so extraordinary that people rush to publish it. Whereas people who do all these studies and they don't find any effects, then they're going to be less enthusiastic about publishing the effect and they're also probably going to face more criticism and they're probably going to, to find it harder to publish a negative result so people won't publish it. Therefore, the market may be skewed by the fact there appear to be more published cases of things really happening than not happening. There's no convincing or compelling evidence for why we ought to be able to tell the future or have a sixth sense over and above what our brain can do for us anyway, which is our brain is very good at spotting patterns and drawing together conclusions based on a range of different elements, some of which we may not be conscious of. So we're very good at picking up and responding to signals in the environment. Not all of them may be obvious to us that we've responded to them. You don't, for instance, notice when the temperature changes slightly, but your skin certainly does, and it very 
subtly adjusts the blood flow through the skin, you don't know that's happened. It doesn't mean that your brain isn't subtly telling some other part of your body, hey, look, it's getting a little bit cold, maybe you should think about going home early now because the temperature's dropping, and it plants the seed of a thought in your mind, I might go and get my coat in a minute, without you realising that. And you could say, oh, well, I've, I've anticipated it's going to get cold tonight, so I'd better go and take a coat with me. I, I think that's probably more what's going on than, than actually anything spooky. <laughs> Thank you very much. An SMS here, it says, I have neurofibromas. Is that how you say it? All over my body and it's itching so severely. What may be the reason? Well, I, I don't know. The condition being referred to is neurofibromatosis. Okay. And this causes these growths of, of these lumps called neurofibromas, which occur on any part of the body. And there's a number of different conditions which are associated with this. This is usually caused by a genetic abnormality and why it should those lesions should become itchy i don't know it might be that someone needs to check that out because they're not normally itchy they're normally just um, growths on the skin they shouldn't be that itchy if, if something has changed and this is a new thing you probably should get it checked by a doctor let's go to ntlantla in the val thomas can you pick that one up for me please ntlantla in the val thank you very much welcome uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> i just want to find out why does the sun appear larger at uh, sunset than than at midday, and and also uh, if if for instance um, it logic says that it means perhaps we are closer to the sun, but then why doesn't it become um, hotter or warmer than 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 it is at midday? Hi there, very good question. Thank you for that one. The the answer is that the sun does not get closer to the earth at any point during the day. What actually happens is that the sun sinks towards the horizon or rises on the horizon, obviously, and the light that's coming to us from the sun is passing through a greater distance of atmosphere. And this has the effect of scattering the light and making the sun look a red colour, but it also means that you're viewing the sun in the context of objects on the ground. So let me explain. When the sun's directly overhead, the only reference point you have is the sun in the sky. And because the sky is vast and the sun is one little point in the vast sky, your brain does a bit of trickery and says, well, the sun relative to this massive sky must be quite small. When the sun sinks onto the horizon, it then looks much bigger because you're seeing trees or buildings or people or cars in the same context as the sun, and because you know the people are quite small and you know the sun is quite a long way away, your brain uses the same mental trickery and says, well, this is a far away thing and it's pretty big compared to these people, which are much closer. Therefore, the sun must be massive. So it gives you the impression the sun is much bigger than it is. The sun hasn't changed its distance relative to the Earth, although it has sent its light through more atmosphere, but it's just being seen in the context of things which are smaller and closer to you. Therefore, you regard it as bigger. Thank you very much. And uh, is it Ben? Do we have time for Ben just very quickly? Very quickly. Ben in Centurion, hi. Yes, hi, really, Dr. Chris. Um, if you take uh, the, the pit of the avocado, um, once you've cut it in half and you take that out, it very often becomes brown and very quickly turns into a brownish color. If you take the avocado and you chop it into pieces and make a salad with it, and you, let's say, for instance, put it in the fridge, and you take that same pit and put it in between the, the salad, it seems to, to, to keep uh, a bit longer and not become, uh, you know, a brown that, that quicker. What is the scientific connection there? 
I can only think, Ben, I don't know the answer, but I can only think it could be to do with two things. One could just be moisture. That's, I think, the most likely, because avocado is lovely moist flesh, isn't it? And if you put the pip there, in the context of that nice moist flesh, it might keep the pip surface more damp. And if it's more damp, that may prevent it undergoing whatever causes that colour change. The other possibility, perhaps there's some kind of antioxidant in the fruit flesh. And when it's in the context of that antioxidant, it stops it maturing onto that darker colour, take it away from that, and it's then divorced from that antioxidant effect and it does go dark. I, I'll have a look into that one, but I think it's more likely to be the, the drying effect rather than anything else. Thank you very much, Ben. And Chris, have a lekker, lekker weekend. We'll see you again next week, Friday. Oh, I'm looking forward to that, Reedy. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Bye, everybody. See you soon. And of course, this will be available as a podcast. Not only that, you can visit uh, the Naked Scientists website on www.thenakedscientists. It's plural because he's not the only one, hey? There are a few of them. And two did come and join us just before Easter. It was a fabulous, fabulous show made possible by you as well, of course. So it's www.thenakedscientists.com. Dot com.